I got a special appreciation for your prayers when I got to preach from verses like that, all right? Uh, so this morning, we are continuing our walk through the book Song of Songs. It is a poem. It is a love song. It's a celebration of the passionate love between a young bride and her groom. It's a piece of art that puts on display a picture of God's wisdom for physical and sexual intimacy. And the verses that Doug just read are at the very heart of the song. Literally, they are the center of gravity. The verses in the very middle of the song, there are 111 lines that come before them and 111 lines that follow them. So the very center of the song is physical, sexual intimacy. It is invitation, consummation, and celebration. And I'm ready to blush and it's only the introduction, okay? So you guys are going to have to bear with me this morning. Today, we are looking at one of the most passionate, intimate, descriptive parts of the entire Bible. And here's how the flow goes. Uh, The man recites, the woman invites, and they delight. Okay, that's simple. Uh, The scene is dominated by a 15-verse love song, a poem that the man recites to his bride. In it... He, uh, he tells her, he praises her beauty, her form, her figure. He describes how she has captivated his heart and he confesses his longing for her. And as she hears all that and takes it in, she responds with an eager invitation. Well, come on then. And he doesn't have to be asked twice. They just delight. So what we, uh, and then the scene ends with these words. Eat, friends, drink, and be drunk with love. And that, in the original language, is not like a lighthearted, good for you, way to go kind of thing, okay? In the original Hebrew, this is like a strong, commanding sort of commission or charge to the couple. The words there for drink and be drunk In Hebrew are shatha, shakar, shakar. And shatha means to drink or it can mean to be drunk. And shakar means to imbibe and get drunk. And so in Hebrew, if you say something three times in a row, that is the most emphasis. It's great force behind what you're saying. And that's what happens here. Be drunk, be drunk, be drunk. But not with alcohol. Be drunk with love. Right? And the words with love come from the Hebrew word to boil. So they're not talking about brotherly affection. All right? They are talking about steamy, hot, boiling love. And so what we have on our hands today is a steamy, hot, love drunk, reciting, inviting, delighting, R rated sort of scene. Why on earth would we preach something like that? You know, like, it's intimate, it's descriptive, it's sort of awkward to talk about in church. Anybody with me? If you're right there, me too, okay? Why would we talk about this? My answer is because God talks about it, right? Like, in the New Testament, we see the Apostle Paul tell Timothy, a young pastor, all scripture is breathed out by God. All of it. 
And that includes these verses and this song. What a shame it would be if we stayed silent about such a great gift of God, especially when the world around us talks about it so much, right? And so uh, we're going to talk about it this morning. Uh, it brings to mind for me C.S. Lewis' book, The Screwtape Letters. Uh, it's kind of a clever book. In it, uh, an older, experienced demon is mentoring his younger nephew demon in how to draw people away from God. And in one part, he uh, talks about human pleasures, okay? This is what the mentor tells his nephew, how to draw people away from God. Never forget that when we are dealing with any pleasure in its healthy and normal and satisfying form, we are, in a sense on God's ground. God made the pleasure. All we can do is to encourage the humans to take the pleasures which our enemy, that's God, has produced at times or in ways or in degrees which God has forbidden. And so in the book, Lewis is just reminding us, it was God who created sex. It's beauty, it's pleasure, it's wonder, it's mystery, it's intimacy, the whole thing. God made it. And so when we talk about it in its right and healthy and satisfying, even its drunk, 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 steamy form, we're in God's territory. And so that's one great reason to talk about it in church. But also, Lewis is reminding us that there's an enemy against us and a world around us that wants us to take the pleasures that uh, God made for our good and twist them. In other words, what was intended for our good and our pleasure gets twisted and works for our pain and distance from God himself. So, we're going to talk about uh, physical and sexual intimacy this morning, both because God created it and because the world around us tries to twist it. So here's what we're going to do. We're going to try to highlight um, some contrasts between what the world has to say about that intimacy and what the song has to say about it, all right? We're going to highlight three things the song says about this intimacy. Here they are. It is private, it is personal, and it is promising. Private, personal, promising. That's where we're headed today. Let's jump in. The man and the woman in the song, their intimacy is private. It is exclusive. It is between the bride and her groom. Her beauty and her body are just for him, and his are just for her. One writer said, it is not a show-all-tell-all thing. It is a show-him-tell-all her sort of thing. That's what we see. And so when the groom begins to tell her, to sing her praises, he gets incredibly descriptive about what he sees. Let's look at how he begins. This is what he says. Behold, you are beautiful, my love. Behold, you are beautiful. Your eyes are doves behind your veil. And so we're just going to say from the outset, outside of the veil that he mentions here and a necklace, he doesn't describe anything else that she is wearing. So at most, she is thinly veiled before him. Uh, she shows herself to him, and he, with thinly veiled words, praises her for what he sees. 
He likes what he sees, all right? She shows him. He tells her, and he starts with, behold, or maybe better translated, whoa, right? (laughs) Whoa. And what follows is this beautiful, specific poem of praise. He says her eyes are doves, or she has doves eyes, okay? Let me tell you a couple things about doves. Doves have no peripheral vision. They have tunnel vision. They can only see what is right ahead of them. And doves only mate with one other dove for their entire lives. Their hearts are one directional. So if you are a dove, you have one directional eyes and heart. They're only focused on the one in front of them. And the groom is praising his bride for having that kind of eyes. They're beautiful for him to look at, and he loves the way they look back at him. Incredible, right? So he praises her eyes, and then he moves from her eyes to her hair. And he says this, your hair is like a flock of goats leaping down the slopes of Gilead, right? Husbands, try that later on and see how it goes. (laughs) Today, some people call guys like Tom Brady, the the quarterback for the Patriots, the GOAT, right? An acronym for the greatest of all time. So maybe you could get away with, hey, baby, your hair is the GOAT, right? I don't know. I'm stretching. That is not what's going on in the song, okay? Not it. He says her hair is like a flock of goats. And that's a little weird, but track with me. Uh, My family got to go through the Bighorn Mountains last summer. And uh, road construction took us on this detour through this like dirt road up in a remote part of the mountains. And we got stopped among these fields near the peaks. And so while we were waiting for our turn to move, we noticed this one little sheep climbed over the mountain and made its way down the side hill that we could see. And so we're kind of watching that. And then moments after that sheep came over the mountain, this huge flock followed. And it was incredible. What, was, what had just been green turned a stunning white as the sheep's wool covered the mountainside. What had just been still came to life as these sheep walked and leapt and meandered down the side hill. It was captivating, mesmerizing. You just couldn't look away. And the groom is saying that's what it's like for him to look at his bride's hair. It flows down over her shoulders. He said, it's captivating. It's mesmerizing. It's beautiful. Your hair looks like that. So not so bad in context, right? Uh, So he goes from her eyes to her hair to her teeth. This is what he says about her smile. Your teeth are like a flock of shorn ewes that have come up from the washing, all of which bear twins and not one among them has lost its young. Okay? In short, <laughs> they're all clean and accounted for, okay? <laughs> they're all white and they're all there. That's not great praise, maybe, but in these days, there were no orthodontics or dentists or Colgate. So it's a big deal for him. He's saying, You got great teeth and a beautiful smile. And he continues down her figure with verses that uh, I just would have blushed even more to read, okay? Until verse 7, in which he gives a summary statement of his captive heart by his bride. This is what he says. You are altogether beautiful, my love. There is no flaw in you. Amazing. How could he say that? 
he's making it up? I don't think so. I don't think he's embellishing. I think this man is experiencing the same thing that we experience, like when somebody close to you has a baby. You go visit them, and you get to hold that baby, and you look at her, and you ooh, and you ah, look at her little fingers and toes. She's, what do you say next? Perfect. And what do you mean when you say that baby's perfect? You don't mean, oh, I found an objective list of baby perfection qualities and checked off all the boxes, right? That's ridiculous. That's not what it's about. You're saying, oh, I would not change a thing about this baby. Perfect, just the way she is. And that's what this husband is saying about his bride. He's not describing her beauty and her body and praising her for some outside list of requirements about what she should be. He is praising her beauty and her body simply because they are hers. Amazing, right? So this wedded show and tell, it's specific, thoughtful, passionate, it's intimate, but it's also private. It is between the bride and the groom. He got her and she got him And we can see both sides of that equation in the man's words, okay? Um, Let's read them together. Here's what the man says. You have captivated my heart, my sister, my bride. You have captivated my heart with one glance of your eyes, with one jewel of your necklace. She shows all to him, and what did she captivate? His glance? What did she capture? Just the moment? She captivated his heart. She stole it. She ravished it. She captured it. It beats fast just for her. He is captivated, and his heart is hers, right? But it's not just that way. She is his too. Look what he says. A garden locked is my sister, my bride. A spring locked, a fountain sealed. Now, a garden, a spring, and a fountain in these days were all pictures or metaphors for female sexuality, okay? And so what he is saying here is his wife is locked, locked, and sealed three times. And what he means by that is she is not on display for all to see. She unlocked the gates only for him. She's locked up. He's got the only key. He gets in. Everybody else locked out. Their physical and sexual intimacy is private. He's captivated. His heart, his words, his eyes are just for her. She is locked. Her body, her beauty, her heart is just for him. It's private. Not show all, tell all. Uh, the song says, show him, tell her. All right. So what does that mean for us today? It's a nice song here, but what do we take from it? I think maybe the first thing we take from it is if you are married, it's okay to play show and tell, which is awkward for me to say into this microphone, all right? So I'm just going to admit that. It's okay to do that. It's okay to eat and drink and be drunk with love. It's okay to delight in following that commission for married couples. Now, we're trying to keep it PG from the stage on Sunday, so I'm not going to elaborate much here, 
But we're doing a conference, a passion and purity conference in a couple weeks where we actually will dive in to more stuff like this. So uh, sign up for that. There are cards in the back. You'll get more information about how to sign up later on. We would love to see you there. It's okay to play show and tell. What else might private passion mean for us today? Um, I think if physical and sexual intimacy is designed by God to be private, it means we have the opportunity, even the responsibility, to protect it. Are you tracking with me? Okay. We have a responsibility to protect it. So if you're married and you want the drunk, 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 steamy kind of passion that they're talking about here, that might not start in private. That starts with guarding your eyes, protecting your eyes in public, right? Husbands, maybe you need to guard your eyes. Look away when tempting situations come. You put a safeguard or accountability software on your computer. You invite other men to hold you accountable to this sort of private passion standard that the song sets for a husband and wife. Why would you do that? Do it to protect the private passion that's meant to burn between a husband and wife. Stoke that fire alone and let it burn bright. Wives, maybe you need to watch your eyes. Fight against daydreams and fantasies. Invite other ladies to hold you accountable, to keep your heart focused on your husband alone. Why? So that your pleasure in private might increase, so the flame might burn bright where it's meant to burn and not burn the house down somewhere else. If sexual intimacy is private, then today, let me just invite you, would you protect it that burns bright where it's supposed to burn? There's... Uh, application here for singles too, okay? So if you're married, you can protect it. If you're single, you can protect it. How do you protect private passion if you're single? I think we change the questions we ask about how we approach relationships, okay? Um, What if the question wasn't, how far is too far? How far down the road can I go before I'm in trouble? What if we change the question and ask something like, What joys should I save for the private pleasure of marriage? What joys, pleasures do I need to protect so they can burn and be intoxicating in marriage? It's so clear that the passion between a husband and wife in the song is intoxicating. It's meant to be that way. God created it to be that way. And that intoxicating, drunk, drunk, drunk with steamy love came at least in part because these two protected it before they got married. They saved themselves for the privacy of marriage. So singles, what if our questions changed? We got serious about protecting future pleasures. I just have to, I just have to go here for a minute. I think there are probably a lot of people here whose stories are like mine, and you did not do that well. You have not done that well. You are not doing that well. And so you hear this encouragement from the song and you think, that's not me, so what now? And I just want to say to you today, do not despair. Our God is forgiving, he's restoring, he's redeeming, he is out for your good even now. So start today. Like, change the questions today. Start guarding today and protecting that passion today. God will honor it if you make those steps even 
now. Friends, sex isn't show all, tell all. It's private. A bride with her groom, show him, tell her. All right? That's number one. The world says show all, tell all. The song says show him, tell her. Uh, Number two, their love is personal. All right? There's a line of thought in the world today that says sex is simply biological. It's no different than eating or drinking or taking a walk or shaking hands. It's simply a function of biology. And if you follow that line of reasoning far enough, then you, you can begin to believe, well, if that's true, then all of the social norms, all of the morality around this kind of intimacy, it's just added, it's constructed by society and religion just to regulate people's behavior, minimize their pleasure. If that's true, none of that is necessary. If sex is simply a matter of biology, then we can let it happen whenever, wherever, with whoever we want. And friends, we got to be honest, that line of thinking has had a major impact on our culture today. Sex is simply biology. And the song could not disagree more. Stands in stark contrast. It would say sex is not simply biological, it is deeply personal, okay? Look at what the song says. Awake, O north wind, and come, O south wind. Blow upon my garden. Let its spices flow. Let my beloved come to his garden and eat its choicest fruits. I gotta be honest, if you're reading along in the ESV, it's gonna say that the Husband, the groom, says the first two lines right there that I read, and the bride says the last one. Um, The ESV sort of stands in a minority. A whole host of other versions say that the bride says all of this. It's all part of her response. As I've studied, I tend to agree with that. The original Hebrew doesn't tell us who says what. Okay, So um, if she says it all, like I think she does, look at the shift in the language that she uses. She starts by saying, Let the winds blow on my garden. And then the very next breath, she says, let my beloved come to his garden. My garden, his garden. She's talking about the same garden. So whose is it? His or hers? It's both, right? It's both. And later he's going to say, I came to my garden. The picture here is that she has given herself as a gift and he has gladly received it. And this is not just a chauvinistic kind of patriarchal man owning, possessing the woman's garden. It's not a one-way street. She's going to sing about how it goes both ways. Listen to what she says. Uh, She sings, my beloved is mine. And I am his. And later on, I am my beloved's and my beloved is mine. What's happening between these two is not simply biological, right? It is deeply personal. It is a giving yourself to someone else. It's a becoming one with the one you're giving yourself to. It is a mutual possession of one with the other. It is deep personal unity. And friends, this picture 
the beauty of this personal sexual intimacy in marriage can help us fight against the way, imp, uh, the way sex is portrayed as impersonal in our culture. The song says it's deeply personal. The world says it's not. I talked to some college students this last week about this very topic, and they said that in the world today, sex is an assumed part of a dating relationship. If you're dating, then it's happening. It's just assumed. Now, I'm not the youngest guy on the block anymore, uh, and I'm a pastor, so maybe my perspective has changed. But look, it shouldn't be assumed. That's like giving the deed to your house to a dinner guest, right? They don't get access to the bedroom. They're just over for dinner. That's absurd. Now, I will say, I definitely think it's okay to go on dates. I think it's wise to discern is the person I'm interested in now the one that I want to give myself to when the time is right? That's okay to do, but listen, God created sex as an act that physically displays an emotional and spiritual reality. The two are becoming one. Nobody gets to assume or demand that you will become one with them. Nobody. And nobody deserves that gift unless they are willing to commit to giving it back to you. And that happens when you make marriage vows before God and man. Right? This is the Bible right here. In marriage, that commitment creates emotional bonds, relational bonds, and spiritual bonds. It's incredibly physically delightful, like the drunk, drunk, drunk with steamy love kind of thing, but it's so much more than that too. Our hearts were made to be loved, not just our bodies made to be pleased. And this personal sexual intimacy of marriage, the way God designed it, it taps into the soul in a way that no new boo or Tinder hookup ever could, all right? God intended it to be two-way street between a husband and a wife. One more thought on these lines. I know I'm getting intense, but I feel like we're kind of waiting against a, a current here of culture. And so I just got to go there while we're here, okay? One more thought. I think the impersonal nature of pornography is part of what makes it so destructive. Just that it's so impersonal. Porn says that women and men are just objects to be used. Intimacy doesn't matter. It's just biology, bodies, leading to broken hearts. Statistics would tell us that many in this room need to stop settling for porn's cheap alternative to intimacy. Can I just say it again? Many of us need to stop settling for porn's cheap alternative to intimacy. Just stop. You may get to see some biology, but looking at porn, you will never experience the intimacy that your heart longs for and was created for. It cannot provide it. Friends, like the song, let's value and pursue physical and sexual intimacy as a private, personal union between a husband and and wife. It is not simply biological. It is deeply personal. Amen?
That's what the song says. Okay, so a little recap. I just got intense right there. Um, sex is private. It's not a show-all, tell-all deal. It's show him, tell her. Sex is personal. It's not just biology. It is uh, personal. And so, uh, why does that matter? Somebody's thinking here today, yes, pastor, of course you can make that argument from the Bible, but why should I care? That's a reasonable question. So I would begin my answer like this. You should care that sex is personal and private because sex is also promising. In other words, it's intended to point us to the promises and presence of God himself. It's, it's kind of like at Thanksgiving, walking into the kitchen when you're hungry and getting a bite of food before the feast, right? That bite may taste great, but it does not satisfy the hunger. In fact, it just awakens a new hunger and longing for the feast that's to come. And that's what sex is designed to do. It's intended, it's like what we experience, what we see in the book, in the song right now, the sex like we see in the song right now is great, but it's intended to point us to the promises that God has made about what's to come, right? Don't just take my word for it. I want to look at the Bible. Here's what the Bible says. The song has all kinds of language that points us to other scriptures that deal directly with the presence of God with his people. For instance, all of the garden talk reminds us of the Garden of Eden in the very beginning of the Bible where God created man and woman. And you know what life was like in that garden? Here's what the Bible says. And the man and his wife were both naked and were not ashamed. That means they were unveiled, exposed, fully seen, fully known, and catch this, unashamed, not just one between the two of them, not just unashamed before the man and the man before the woman, they were unashamed before the holy God that had just created them. They walked in his presence and knew what it was like. We see God's presence with his people in the garden. But he goes on. It's not just in the garden. We see it in the promised land. Look at what else the groom says to his bride. He says, honey and milk are under your tongue. To find out how he knew it got there, uh, you're going to have to go to the conference, okay? We're keeping PG. He says, honey and milk are under your tongue. And God said he was going to give his people a land flowing with what? Milk and honey. He promised them a land that had all the best of what he created. He made a covenant with them there. A covenant is like a contract. It's a mutual agreement, lifelong, with terms, like a marriage covenant with vows. And here's the vows God made to his people. And I will establish my covenant between me and you. I will give to you and to your offspring after you the land of your sojournings, all the land of Canaan. That's the land that he called the land flowing with milk and honey. You're going to get it all for an everlasting possession, and I will be their God. He's talking about their people, their offspring. God's covenant promise was to give himself and his best to his people. They were going to get a land flowing with milk and honey, all the greatest things that God has created, and better than that, they get the creator himself. I will be their God hearkens back to I am my beloved's and my beloved is mine. God's giving himself to his people. 
Incredible. So we see it in the garden, we see it in the promised land, and we see one more. The husband sings about his wife's garden being filled with spices, oils, aloes, and fragrances. The list that he uses in Song of Songs 4 is incredibly similar to a list that we see in Exodus chapter 30 of the ingredients for the anointing oil that God's people would use to set people and things apart as holy unto God. Like what they would use to anoint something and say, God, we are giving this to you. There was this oil, anointing oil, and it had a scent, a fragrance. And the man here says to his bride, when I smell your scent, I smell the presence of God. He sees it in the garden, in the promised land, in the temple. He sees in the garden a place. When the man looked at his wife, He saw in her the Garden of Eden, a place to be naked and unashamed. He saw the promised land, a place where God would establish his people, give himself and his best to them. And he saw the temple where God's people were set apart for life with him, no other loves and no other gods. And even better yet, the man doesn't just see it, he experiences it. Look at what he says. I came to my garden, my sister, my bride. I was there like I was in Eden. I gathered my myrrh with my spice. I could smell God's presence there. I ate my honeycomb with my honey. I drank my wine with my milk. I could taste the promised land. He's singing, I know what the garden was supposed to be like. I know what it's like to be set apart, to be loved by the one true God and love him in return. I know the joys of God's presence. City light. The promises of God are meant to be experienced by his people. And we see that the ultimate fulfillment of this promise that started in the beginning of the Bible and goes until the end of the Bible, God's promise to be with his people, it is ultimately fulfilled in Jesus Christ, his son. Look at what the Bible says the end is going to be like when we get to fully realize these promises of God. It says, And I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God. It's like walking down the aisle, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband, like a wedding. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them, and they will be his people, and God himself will be with them as their God. Friends, the final restoration between God and man looks like a wedding party. God with his people, his people with him. God sees his people made flawlessly, perfectly beautiful, washed by the blood of Jesus Christ. God is going to dwell with us and us with him. He says they will be his people and he will be their God. It's a mutual possession. It's a beautiful, all in, joining together of God and his people. Friends, that's the Thanksgiving feast that we're waiting for. That's what our hearts are longing for, and that's the promise that the song points us to. Sex is not the greatest joy created for mankind. It is, like God's other gifts, just a pointer to the greatest joy that we will ever find. Psalm uh, 16 says, In your presence is fullness of joy forevermore. Friends, sex is private and personal because it points us to the promises of God. Amen? Let's pray. Oh, great and awesome God. Uh, I thank you 
that you are willing to talk about things and dive into the deepest longings of our hearts, to um, tap into the questions that can be awkward to talk about, the thoughts uh, that we don't know who to talk to about. God, I'm grateful that you've got texts that make me blush on stage. Uh, God, I pray today that the Song of Songs would not in itself um, be the end. God, it's so good to have your thoughts on what it looks like to praise a woman's beauty just because it is hers. It's so good to see a bride freely giving herself to a husband, unlocked to him, locked to everybody else. It's beautiful to see that. And God, as we see that, um, I just want to pray for some people in this room. These matters are real. And so I want to pray for marriages in this room, uh, marriages that are struggling, marriages that for a long, long time, haven't uh, felt the drunk, drunk, drunk with steamy love kind of passion, uh, but maybe some of that love has gone dry. God, I pray that uh, your words in the Song of Songs would reignite that picture of the promise that you made. It's two becoming one. It's a joy. It's a pleasure that you created, even, even charge married couples to enjoy. God, I pray that you would relight that flame, reignite. And I pray that you would do it by starting in the heart. Like the man said, captivated my heart, my bride. And so God, would you capture brides' hearts for their grooms and grooms' hearts for their brides so that private passion can burn hot. And God, I pray for the people here. Um, I just know in the world we live in today, the times we live in, um, Sex is not always personal. Uh, the rampant use of pornography just robs us of that. And so God, today, I ask that you would call people out of that darkness and into the light what you've designed them for, created them for. God, would you empower people to say no to something they've said yes to for a long, long time? Would you convict us when our eyes behold things they should not behold. God, would you be the one that empowers us to protect that passion now and always. And God, I know there are singles in the room today that some of whom are just longing to get to experience the passion and the pleasure that you're talking about here in the song. And so God, I got two, two prayers for them. Number one, Guys, echo those prayers and ask, would you provide? Would you provide spouses? Would you provide loves? God, would you... Um, would you call men and women, even from this church, from this community, to love each other the way that the bride and the groom do in the Song of Songs? Um, would there be meetings and first dates and uh, those kinds of um, experiences that help them know uh, that you've provided and you're uniting? God, I pray that many uh, people would get experience this joy because you call two to become one. And God, while they're waiting... Um, I just ask, I know sex is not the greatest joy that you created for mankind. It is your presence. And so, God, I pray that you would be enough for them while they wait, that they would find ultimate joy and satisfaction in you, that they would find great pleasure in following you, getting to serve you in your church, in your world. And so, God, would you, um, would you be who you are, the one that has uh, pleasures forevermore at your right hand in your presence. God, I thank you for Song of Songs. I pray that it would change us as a people uh, so that we can celebrate 
your pleasure in your territory the way that you designed us to. Uh, God, we love you. We thank you. We praise you. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.